0: Joshua chapter 5, Joshua chapter 5. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. So we'll be looking at Joshua 5, verses 1 through 12. In uh, 1850, Nathaniel Hawthorne published a book called The Scarlet Letter. It was one of the first mass-produced novels in America, and it's still widely read today. I read it in my literature class in high school maybe you've read it. Um, it's a very well-known and and famous work. Uh, if you have read it then you'll know The Scarlet Letter is really a it's a pretty dark story um, about a woman named Hester Prine. and the, the book opens with this scene where she's being openly shamed and put out of, a, out of her community because she has had an affair and that everyone knows it because she had a child because of the affair. And So for the rest of her life Hester Pryne is forced to wear a scarlet A to remind her of the shame of her adultery. And while Hester suffers publicly at the hands of the crowd, uh, even then she will not tell them who the father of the child is. She doesn't want to betray him. And she's content to be banished out of the town where she lives in the solitude of 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 a small house in the forest and raises her daughter, Pearl. Now, meanwhile... While she's doing that, the town pastor, Arthur Dimsdale, with whom she had the affair, lives in the quiet shame, not only of his adultery, but of also the way that he had abandoned Hester and his own child to save his reputation. So much of the story actually centers on Arthur as he wrestles with the shame of his sin. He is tormented by it. And it's so much to the point where his health begins to fail. And so while there's no outward reason that he should be uh, as sick as he is, he cannot eat, he cannot sleep, he cannot live. Although he's a pastor, it seems that Arthur doesn't know anything about the gospel he's been commissioned to preach. And so he is consumed by his sin and his shame. It becomes a burden that is too much for him to bear. He tries to find redemption for his crime through self-mutilation. He finds no peace there. And it's finally at the end of the story, only after he confesses the sin to the town and then dies before them, that the story is finally resolved and the darkness sort of lifts. Now Hawthorne in the Scarlet Letter deals with a lot of complex themes. Um, good and bad. I appreciate his work because I think he accurately captures the human condition apart from Christ and the way he describes the public shame of Hester Prine and the private agony of the minister. Sin brings shame and reproach. In the moment it brings and promises satisfaction but when it is fully formed it brings death. We may hide our sins in the shadows of good intentions. Uh, we may board them up with a facade of good works, but in the end, we have no power to remove sin's reproach and its curse as it rests on our souls. It weighs on us like a, like a great burden on our shoulders because we know, in the end, we are guilty as accused, whether people are aware of our sin or not. as good of a job as Hawthorne does conveying the agony of sin's shame, his story knows nothing about true redemption. Physical death does not bring peace to those who are caught in the snare of sin. It only brings judgment. And so I find that as vivid of a picture as the scarlet letter paints, it ends up leaving us hungry for someone who can bring peace to our hearts and to our souls. It leaves us hungry for a Redeemer who who can not only just pay for our sin, but who can also remove sin's reproach from our hearts. And so we find... Uh, that redeemer, in our passage this morning, Joshua chapter five verses one through twelve let's let's begin this morning by reading this text together, if you would once more stand for the reading of God's word Joshua five verses one through twelve Hear the Word of the Lord as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were beyond the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha'aroth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, since getting into the book of Joshua, we have seen several important doctrinal truths. We've seen that God is faithful. He always keeps His promises. We've also seen God's power to deliver His people through every circumstance. We have seen how God calls His people to be holy as He Himself is holy. And we've seen how God has shown His glory in the global work of His salvation. Well, this morning, I want to draw your attention to another important doctrine of the book of Joshua. And of the Bible, and that is, I want to draw your attention to see how Joshua teaches us to hope in the God who is able to deliver us from the shame of our sin through the power of his redemption. Now, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words, but pictures, you'll know, usually need a caption before we can understand why they're significant. Verse 9, I want to submit to you, is that caption. Uh, It explains the significance of this passage and why it matters. In verse 9, we see that God tells Joshua that he has rolled back the people's reproach from them, which is to say that God had removed the people's shame in this day when he delivered them into the Lamb. And that is the key idea of our text. It's also the main idea of the sermon this morning that we want to look at today. If you have your sermon notes, you should be able to see the, that main idea there that is this, simply that God removes our shame through his salvation. God removes our shame through through his salvation. And what I want to do this morning is I want to point out three ways that we see God removing the shame of his people in this passage. So three ways God removed the shame of Israel. First, he made them a victorious nation. He made them a victorious nation. Second, he reminded them of his covenant. He reminded them of his covenant. And lastly, he gave them better bread. He gave them better bread. Well, first we want to look at how God removed Israel's shame by making them a victorious nation. Now, uh, last night, had the awesome privilege and the most fun I've ever had watching a football game with Titus. Uh, he was all into it. Uh, he knew when to yell because we were yelling, and he was clapping. Uh, he also tried to throw things at the screen. But that's, not, that's pretty typical. Uh, sometimes we, we got to watch a really dominant victory by our Clemson Tigers. And sometimes in sports, you get a game where one team dominates another team so badly in the first half that you know uh, they might as well not even come out for the second half. Um, when I was in fifth grade, I managed. I was in elementary school. I uh, was playing rec league football. I managed to get on our on our rec leagues all star team. We were excited. We traveled to Grant County to play their team. It turned out I think they were a middle school team. It was not fair because we were fifth graders and these they had eighth graders. It was crazy. Uh, we came with enthusiasm and we got crushed. I remember I, I didn't. I was the quarterback for our rec league and then we on, on our team. And they end up putting me at cornerback. I remember very distinctly, one of their players had a mustache. And I, rea- I realized he had a mustache as he was smashing me. And I thought to myself, this is not fair. So we, he was a foot taller than anybody else. And we gave it our best shot, but it was hopeless. I felt like we were just going through the motions. Well, chapter 5 looks like one of those games. Look at verse 1. Joshua writes as soon as the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea. So this is encompassing all the peoples who are living in the land that God's given giving Israel. When they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So catch that, not an arrow has been shot, not a stone has been thrown. Israel has not yet, they have yet to even draw a sword in Canaan. And the kings of the peoples who are there know it's game over for them. This report about the morale of the kings of the Canaanites is really similar to what we read when Rahab was talking to the spies in chapter 2. She told them that the people's courage had dried up when they heard about how God dealt with the armies of Egypt 40 years prior to this, and then when they had heard about how Israel had defeated the two kings, Og and Sihon, beyond the east, on the east side of the Jordan River. And now God has showed his power in an even more mighty way. They haven't just heard of it, they've seen it. And just as he dried up the waters before uh, Israel at the Red Sea, so he had also dried up the waters before uh, the Jordan River before all of Israel until they had all crossed over. And the stage is set for Israel's victory. Now, God could have brought Israel... Back through the land and to the land in, in in a thousand different ways. He could have brought them up from the south, uh, back through the land where, uh, where at the place where their parents had refused to go. Uh, that would have made a great theological point. I would talk about how God had overcome the fear of the parents, but God didn't do that. No, he he and he could have also taken them around to the north. God didn't do that. He could have waited until a time when the Jordan River wasn't flooded. But God didn't do that. Instead, he brought the people through the troubled waters of the Jordan when they were at their height, and then he split those waters open as a sign to Israel and as a sign to the Canaanites to show them and to show the world that he is the living God and that he was with Israel and that he's going to drive out the enemies of his people out of the land of their inheritance without fail which is what we read in chapter 3, verse 10. God wasn't about to allow the rebellion of that first generation to distract from the radiance of his glory. And so he brought Israel into the land in a way that only he could do. When Israel went into Egypt, they weren't known as being fierce warriors. They were small. They were shepherds. And then when they left Egypt... They left as slaves who had been freed, but slavery was all that the people had known for almost four generations. When Israel crossed over the Jordan River, we shouldn't see them crossing over like legendary warriors like Spartans or Vikings, but they did come over as the people of God. And so when the Canaanites saw how God brought them over, they were afraid not because they were afraid of Israel, but because they were afraid because they had seen the power of the living God who was with Israel. In the same way that God went before the people into the waters of the Jordan and split those waters open so that the people could enter Canaan on dry land, so God was also going to go before the people into their battles to fight against the Canaanites. So while the armies of Israel haven't even drawn their weapons out of their sheaths, The battle is already won, because the power that's delivering the land into into their hands wasn't theirs; it was the Lord's. There are a couple of really important differences to the way the Israelites responded to this experience uh, versus the Canaanites and how they responded. Both of them, we need to see, came to a firsthand knowledge of the power and the glory of God. Both the Canaanites and the nation of Israel saw the same display of God's unstoppable power. But whereas the Israelites learned to fear the Lord, the Canaanites became afraid of God and of his people. We talked a little bit last week about what the difference between fearing God and being afraid of him as the Canaanites were, is. Fearing God means that we come to regard God the way he ought to be regarded. Fearing the Lord means That we come to revere Him, to love Him, to obey Him. God does not revel in making His creatures afraid of Him like the Wizard of Oz. He made us to know Him, to love Him, and to experience Him in, in reverence of His holiness and in the splendor of His glory, to fill our hearts with His joy. Now, the Canaanites recognized God's power, they realized they were in the crosshairs of God's holy justice. And that nothing they could do was going to stop God from splitting them open the way he had split open the Jordan. They saw God's power. They were afraid of him, but they did not learn to fear him. Just like clay becomes a hard brick in the heat of the sun, the hearts of the Canaanites hardened in the face of God's undeniable glory. Their courage may have melted, but their hearts were not warmed towards God. And so when he came to their doorstep, their hearts refused him. Like Hemingway's, Arthur Dimmesdale was consumed with his sin, so the sin of the Canaanites consumed them. They felt its burden, they felt its shame, but they would not repent, and they would not turn to God to seek his mercy, the way we saw Rahab did. Just like the demons know and acknowledge God's holiness firsthand, they still refused to submit to him. And so these Canaanites, had come, though they had come to see the power of the God of all the earth, their hearts still remained hard. And so the rest of Joshua is going to tell us about how God's justice fell on them. Sin has that sort of effect on human hearts. It deadens our senses and blinds our eyes to see the seriousness of our sin. Though the works of God and His power are evident to us each and every day, unless God softens our cold, stony hearts and gives us a heart of flesh that fears Him, we will meet the same end as these Canaanites. The same clay that becomes hard in the light of the sun also becomes soft and moldable when it's refreshed in water. And God, in the same way, is able to make hearts like ours, soft, living Because while he's a God who enforces justice, he's also merciful. And he treasures repentance. And he shows mercy and steadfast love to all who call on him. The struggle against a hard heart is a struggle that we all face day in and day out. Because sin is still attractive to us. Because we are still in that danger of having hard hearts like the Canaanites, then we must daily rely on God to give us hearts that that beat for him and love him and love to savor him, hearts that fear him and exalt him. Now maybe you're here this morning and your heart really over the past week has felt pretty numb to God. If that's you, friend, it doesn't need to remain that way. This passage is for you because it shows us that God is the God who removes sin, and who removes sin's shame, and who gives men and women like you and me hearts that are soft toward him. Now there's a second thing we should notice about the way that the Canaanites responded to God God and how he brought Israel into the land. Notice how in the middle of verse 1, we read that the Canaanites were afraid because of how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan River so that the people could cross over the land. So they're afraid of the Lord, But then, at the end of verse 1, we read that there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. That's a shift. That's an interesting shift that should catch our our eyes. Why were the Canaanites afraid of God? Because they had seen His power. Were they afraid of God or were they afraid of Israel? That's when we end verse 1, we have to ask that question. Who are they really afraid of? Well, The answer is both, really. And that's a significant point made by the way this author has structured the verse. It helps us to see how God replaces his people's shame with his fame. The Canaanites weren't afraid of Israel because they were big and bad, or because they had really any real power in and of themselves. Israel didn't split the river. God did. Israel didn't have the power to take the land of Canaan on their own. But they did have the Lord. The Lord had called them out of the shame of their slavery. He delivered them to a place of rest, a place where they would be his people and he would be their God, where they would live and flourish and where they would live in with, his, with his presence dwelling among them in the temple. When God called Israel to be his people, when, when he cut his covenant with them, he wove his glory and the fame of his name into the fabric of their nation in a special way. It was through Israel that God said he was going to bless the whole world. It was through Israel that God said he was going to make the glory of his name shine like the noonday sun into every dark corner of the world so that the fame and the glory of the name of God would be exalted everywhere by everyone. When God called Abram, Abram was a pagan. He was living in a land that was named after his brother, he had no inheritance. He had nothing except for fear, barrenness, faithlessness, and sin. God did not choose Abram because God thought Abram had something he could use. God chose Abram to be an object of his grace and a blessing to the whole world because it pleased him and because it was through Abram's weakness that God said he was going to display his strength and power to save it was through Abram's barrenness that God said he was going to make him the father of many nations. It was through Abram's poverty that he said he was going to fill the world with the blessings of heaven. And it was through the offspring of Abraham that he was going to secure a people for himself for every tribe and tongue and nation. When God unites himself to a people like he did Israel, he removes their shame and he replaces it with the fame of his glory. The Canaanites had seen the power of God, and they feared Israel as they did, because they knew Israel had been set apart in a special way by God to represent his glory to the earth. In a much greater way, God has worked out victory for you and for me and for all who are united to God by faith in in King Jesus. Jesus came to wage war on sin and death, By taking our sin upon himself on the cross, he has taken our shame and he has put it on himself. He has borne that reproach on himself and then he has replaced that with the glory of his victory. He rules and reigns now. His resurrection is a sign to us that one day we will live with him, that we will rule and reign with him because his death has become our death. His life has become our life and his glory has become our glory. Paul writes in Colossians 1, verses 21 and 23, he says, And you who were once alienated, that means foreign and hostile in mind to God, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, above shame before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So the gospel of the Bible tells us how God has worked in his power, not just to save us from the consequences of our sin, not just to save us from hell, but it also tells us how in Christ God has removed sin and the stain of its shame by making us new in the likeness of Jesus. He has set us free from the reproach of our sin as he did the Israelites, by making us victorious in him. So God removed Israel's shame by making them a victorious nation. He also remove their shame by reminding them of his steadfast covenant. It is a good thing that, the vic, that, that our victory over sin and the removal of our shame depends on God's power and not ours. We have no more power to remove the shame of sin from our souls than Arthur Dimmesdale could remove his feeling of guilt as he stood before his his town and any more than a leopard has power to remove its spots. When Israel came into the the promised land, they arrived still bearing the shame of their rebellious parents. Their parents who died in the wilderness under God's curse and who were not permitted to enter into God's rest. Now, the more I have read verses 2 through 7 this week, the more surprised I am that God even let Israel into the land. We read this, He says, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Now, it is not possible to circumcise a person more than once. And we know this is not a metaphorical command because God told Joshua to make real flint knives. So we're left wondering what is happening here. Well, the explanation comes in verse 4. When we read this, this is the reason. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though the, all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way after they, had not come out of, after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Now this passage, I hope this passage baffles you the way it baffles me i have yet to figure out how on earth this happened the generation that entered the land of canaan the generation that said to joshua we will obey you and all the things that moses commanded just as we obeyed moses they didn't even bear the basic mark of god's covenant the covenant he made with abraham once more we're not given any explanation as to how this happened And, and we're left wondering How on earth did Moses let this one slip by, especially after God almost killed him in Exodus 3 because he didn't circumcise his sons? So how does this work? It's not as if the seriousness of this circumcision could have been missed. I mean, this mark goes all the way back to their forefather, Abraham. It is the sign of the covenant. It marks them as one of his house. Every male in his house was to be circumcised. Every baby boy was to be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth according to the law. And the law even goes so far as to say that unless a person was circumcised, he, one, could not celebrate the Passover, and two, he could not come before God to sacrifice. It went so far as to say that a man who was uncircumcised was cursed and was himself cut off from the people and from the Lord. So this is a, this is a serious thing to learn that an entire generation of men had not been circumcised according to the law. And somehow they think they're going to get the land by obeying God's law. It only not even started right. Circumcision is like a door. You have to go through it first before you can sit down at the Lord's table to enjoy the food of His promises. And yet here we are in Gilgal with a second generation of men and none of them have been circumcised. Now, that just confounds me. The book of Joshua, to my frustration, is not concerned about telling us why the people weren't already circumcised. It is more concerned with explaining that Joshua and the people were careful to obey the Lord before they went any further into the land. And I think that's the emphasis of this section. As our author explains that Joshua and the people carefully obeyed God's commands, he draws an important contrast between this generation and the generation of their parents. And this section has three important lessons for us to learn. First, the first lesson this passage teaches us is that you can bear all of the outward marks of righteousness and still not be right with God. You can have the mark of the covenant promise, and yet your heart can be far from God. Israel actually wasn't the only nation that practiced the rite of circumcision. They were unique because of why they practiced it. It was something that God had commanded to mark them as a special people. The generation that came out of Egypt had the marks of circumcision on their bodies. We, we read that here, um, where, where we're told that all the generation that came out of Egypt had it. But we saw that even though they had that mark, when their faith was tested, as they were getting to ready to enter the land, they caved. Because they feared the people who lived in the land more than they feared God. And so they showed that though they had the physical marker of faith, they did not really have faith. They had superficial faith. They did not obey the Lord. And while all the men of that generation were circumcised in the flesh, we see that their hearts were not The law of Moses commanded that every male in the house of Israel was to be circumcised. But God's concern has never been about the physical circumcision. He cares far more about the source of our actions. He cares about our hearts. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, verse 14. Moses says this, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all the peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. We see that command again in jeremiah 9 verse 25 where god says this he says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh egypt judah edom and all the sons of ammon moab and all who live in the desert who cut the corners of their hair for all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of israel are uncircumcised in heart so God is not fooled by outward acts of worship and reverence that are not produced by hearts of faith, love, and obedience. That's why the first generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. They were circumcised in the flesh, but not in the motives and the desires of their hearts. So acts of, acts of outward obedience were not matched by, with hearts that loved and feared God. Such hearts are like shiny, such actions are like shiny plastic fruit. It looks good when it's on the table, but you can't eat it because it's not real. The fate of the first generation of Israelites who came out with Moses is a warning to you and to me because we can bear all the outward signs of faith without ever really being born again. Do not place your faith or your hope in the fact that you, you were baptized or in the fact that you take the Lord's Supper Do not hope for heaven because your name is in the church directory. Do not find rest in the fact that you are sitting in a chair in church or because you tuned in online to service today. Those things by themselves, apart from a heart of faith, are worthless husks, plastic fruit. If you have not been born again, you cannot please Christ with such acts. We cannot fool God. As Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Those are outward signs. But what does count? Paul says, a new creation. That new creation comes by faith in Jesus Christ. The only confidence we have for anything And for our standing before God is if we're reconciled to him by faith. The second lesson we learn from verses 2 through 8 is that God's covenant promises are stronger than our rebellion. God's covenant promises are stronger than our rebellion. Israel's time in in the wilderness was a time of testing. It tested Israel's faith, and we see that they came well short. It also tested God's faithfulness, which didn't fail. For their faithlessness, God swore that that first generation would not enter the land. They would not enter the place of rest. That point is made very clearly uh, by our author here in in the first part of verse 6. We see that they perished in the wilderness because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. But then in the second part of verse 6, the table turns. God swore in his wrath that that first generation would not enter the land, but he had also sworn that he would give their children this land. And so we see that he did. The land flowing with milk and honey, a land of abundance and rest, God gave to the sons and daughters of a rebellious generation. Though an individual may cut themselves off from the promise of God's blessing by their own unbelief and rebellion, God's purposes are still stronger. He always sees his promises through to the end. And so though that first generation which bore the outward marks of the covenant on their bodies... They, they, were, they were cursed to wander in the wilderness and die because of their unfaithfulness. Their children still received God's blessing of faith. I'm inclined to understand that the reason the second generation, this is, this is me just trying to read in the passage, but the reason I think the second generation probably wasn't circumcised is just simply because of the faithlessness of their own parents. But clearly we see that that did not stop God from claiming their sons and their daughters as his own. So it stands that you and I are not the sum of the sins of our parents. It's a little awkward when your parents are sitting over here. (laughs) Now some of you know this firsthand because you didn't grow up in a house that taught you the gospel and yet here you are. Here you are. You need to marvel at that. God worked in your life. Your circumstances would have dictated that you wouldn't be sitting here. And yet God showed you that you needed to be rescued from your sin. He reached into the darkness and He rescued you and He made you one of His own. And you were a testimony to the fact that faithfulness and faithlessness and sin are not enough to derail the sovereign will of God. There are many aspects of our lives over which we have no control. You did not choose your parents. You did not choose where you would be born. You did not choose your your gender. You did not choose your own name. Some of you may have had a pretty easy life. Some of you may have struggled against challenge after challenge. And we may all wish that our circumstances would have been different or could be different. But the gospel teaches us that we must learn to be content in the knowledge that God has ordered all things for the salvation of his people. And that he has worked out your life to this point to bring you to a place where you are sitting among other believers and you are reading his sovereign word and you are reading about the the God who removes shame and who rescues from sin. And that is not something to bat an eye at. Let us marvel at the God who is greater than our circumstances, who has worked and willed to use the circumstances that were appointed to you to give you salvation and who is with you to the end as the great keeper of your soul. This is an important message for us to remember because we live in a world right now that says you are nothing other than the circumstances in which you find yourself, whether that is your class was it whether that is the color of your skin, whether that is your creed, whether that is how much money you have? You are either an oppressor or you are an oppressed. But the reality is, is that we are all oppressed by sin, and the gospel tells us how that shame is removed. It is not through rebellion; it is through submission to Christ. Praise God that His promises are bigger than our rebellion. The third lesson we have from this section comes to those, maybe you're like me, maybe you grew up or you're growing up in a home that teaches the gospel faithfully. If, if that's the case, then you need to see the third lesson from this section. You cannot depend on the faith of your parents to save you. Your faith must be your own. Even while this passage tells us about the unbelief of that first generation, it does not in any way excuse the second generation from following God's commands. They could not expect to have received God's blessing if they took on their parents' example of unbelief. They still needed to be circumcised. They still needed to cling to God's law. Just because God had brought them into the land and not their parents didn't mean that they could just coast through this. They were going to have to fight for faith. They were called to faith, and so they were going to have to obey God themselves. Following Christ as his disciple is the only path to true happiness and joy, but it is not an easy thing. It can be painful. Circumcision is a painful thing, whether it's physical, like the Israelites in our passage, or whether it's the sort of circumcision of the heart that involves putting off fleshly desires and taking up the cross that Christ calls his disciples to bear. But the pain that comes with obedience to God is a small thing to bear, considering the eternal weight of glory that Christ has secured for his people when he himself went to suffer on the cross. Christ's call to his disciples is a call that we must each answer individually. We must answer the call, painful though it might be, As the author of Hebrews calls us to consider how Jesus himself suffered outside the gates in order to sanctify, to make holy the people through his own blood. He says, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. It is interesting to me that God would tell Joshua after after the camp had submitted to God and taken on the mark of the covenant that he had first made with, with them and with their fathers, that immediately after this he told Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. I have removed your shame, he tells Joshua. It's hard to say exactly what Joshua, what God mean, means when he says, he talks about this reproach of Egypt. Uh, scholars debate about it. Joshua doesn't define what that is for us, but I think we can get an idea here uh, from from the significance of what has just happened. When Israel first left Egypt, things started out great. They had been freed from slavery. They they were delivered from Pharaoh's army in a way that was undeniably God's power. They received God's holy law. They were on their way to the promised land, but then everything fell. Fell and came to a crashing stop when Israel refused to go in the land because they were afraid and then they said to themselves let's go back to slavery forget this I just want to live I'll take onions over, over this their bodies may have been on the doorstep of God's land, the land of God's rest but their hearts were elsewhere and on that day reproach came on that people because though God had rescued them from Egypt, the whole world looked and said, well, I guess God can't bring his people into the land. So on this day, God tells Joshua that when, their chil- when, the children, when the children of those rebels took on the sign of God's covenant and they acted out of faith that God was their own, God rolled the reproach of Egypt away from them. And the world saw that even the faithlessness of a generation cannot stop his sovereign will. The faithless wandering in the wilderness was forgotten. It was rolled away. And the people were ready to receive the blessings of faith. So God removed the shame of the people by making them a victorious nation. He removed their shame uh, by restoring the covenant and the mark of the covenant to them. And the final way we see that God, gave, God um, removed the shame is that he gave the people a better bread. He gave the people a better bread. Um, There's a major change that happens here in verses 10 through 12. And you'll notice here, God stops sending the manna to the people. There are three details you need to be aware of about here. First, in this section, we see that the people keep the Passover for the first time since they've been in the land. This is a major milestone. The the first Passover was observed in Egypt about 40 years prior to this. And now, the Passover is being enjoyed in the promised land. This is a big day because it's no longer as if the people are celebrating what God had done in Egypt in the hope of what they'd be able to receive when they finally got God's inheritance. Now they're actually receiving it. Second detail you need to notice. In verse 11, we see that the day after the Passover, on that very day, we read, the people ate of the produce of the land. They ate unleavened bread and roasted grain. These are the first fruits of what God was giving them, and the timing couldn't be more perfect. Third detail to notice, in verse 12, we see that the manna which God had provided for the people up to this day without fail, while they were in the wilderness, ceased. That people no longer ate manna from heaven. They ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan. A new era has arrived in Israel's history. Their wandering in the wilderness is officially done. Now, I don't always handle change very well. You can ask Ellie about that. It doesn't always go over well. The manna that fell in the wilderness was such an amazing thing. And now the people are in the land, and we read that it's not coming anymore. We got to say to ourselves, well, is the inheritance really any better? I mean, who hasn't dreamed about eating manna the way Israel did in the wilderness? People in Jesus' day who lived in Israel certainly did. They actually demanded that Jesus give them manna the way that Moses did. what did Jesus say to them? He says, "'It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world.'" I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the point is this the manna was never intended to be permanent. And while it's right to marvel at the way God provided so miraculously in the wilderness, now Israel is enjoying the real fruits of inheritance. For an entire year, they ate food that they did not work for, not a grape. Passed between their lips that the people did not receive from the kind hand of God. Their bread may not have fallen from heaven, but each day it was given to them as a gift. There really was nothing less miraculous about the food they ate after the Passover than the food they ate when they were in the wilderness because the source of the food was always God. I want to close this morning with two applications. First, Remember to have a heart of gratefulness. Remember to have a heart of gratefulness. John 3 tells us that a person cannot receive even one thing that is not given to him from God. James likewise tells us that every good and perfect thing comes from above. And since we know that God works all things for our good and for the purpose of exalting King Jesus, there is not one thing in our lives that we can label, that we cannot label, given by your loving Father through the precious blood of his Son. Each bite of food comes the tag that says purchased by Jesus for you. trying to think of a th- I, my mind would blow up if I tried to everything you receive is a gift from God everything good or bad in the moment when it feels bad and harmful God works that for your good so it's a gift and he's working and shaping molding it sometimes in a painful way but in a true way to take on the image of his son to take on the life of the true bread of heaven so each of us must strive to have a heart of gratefulness. Now, gratefulness like that takes discipline, but it's a key part of really finding joy and contentment so that whether we have plenty or whether we have need, whether we have sickness or health, life or death, whether we're sitting here in person or whether we have to be uh, online because we, we came by someone who has COVID, Paul, we have to learn to be content. Now, Paul told the Philippians that he had learned the secret of being content in every circumstance. It's not as if contentment comes naturally. It takes work because it takes daily discipline of looking beyond the current circumstance to see the eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ and to hope for the, the joy that we will have one day when we, when we dine in his presence in the fullness of his glory. So strive to have a, a heart of gratefulness. Second, as we look at the way God provided for the needs of His people through the fruit of the land He was giving them, we're reminded that in the same way the manna was a shadow of the greater inheritance, so also uh, it was a shadow of the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Believers should not be looking to be satisfied with lesser things, because we know that this world is not ultimately our home. Our home is the one, is with the one who has set us free from our sin and from our suffering at the cost of his own life. And while from time to time we are reminded of our sin and we feel that that shadow of shame on our shoulders, we have a greater hope because we have a God who removes the shame of his people. Martin Luther puts this well. He says, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Praise the God who rolled away our shame through the work of King Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, great God of, God of the highest heaven. We are lowly sinners. And yet you are the God who rescues. You are the God who removes shame. We stand in awe of you. How oh, we recognize that day in and day out, we have to live by faith. Because all around us, we look at, at, at a world that's been touched by sin and suffering And it's hard to look at that and all the time rejoice in an inheritance that's coming and that we taste now, but that we long for. So, Father, as we see your faithfulness in Joshua 5, as we've seen that this morning, I pray that you would give us an enduring satisfaction, a a, a light in our souls that chases away the darkness of our shame. Because we know that our Redeemer lives and that He's worthy of our worship. And that one day we'll stand before Him in the joy of His his glory. So even now, Lord, by Your Spirit, apply that happiness and that joy to our hearts so that we would walk in faithfulness. We love You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.